0: Good morning. morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel in the City, Sunday morning service. My name is Eric, and I'll be sharing uh, with you today from the Word uh, a couple of just additional brief announcements. If you're wondering where Pastor Steve is, he's at home under the weather. He actually tested positive for COVID, but uh, I spoke with him last night and wanted to let you know that he's doing quite well. He feels fatigued. But uh, he doesn't have any kind of respiratory symptoms or fevers, so you know he c- continues to ask for the church's prayers as uh, you know he's able to stay at home, do some work from home, and we hope he will uh, the Lord will return him to us quickly. Um, you also may be wondering there's fewer people here today than we normally have on a Sunday morning service, and we were scheduled to have a Christmas program this morning with the kids, so the reason for that is we had one t- child test positive for COVID. It was in that uh, Christmas rehearsal last week. And so, you know, we try to follow the, the state guidelines about what to do in those situations. And the recommendation is that those kids should be quarantined. And so, um, you know, their quarantine period, I think, ends uh, tomorrow for them. And so the plan, I believe, is that that Christmas program will be rescheduled for next Sunday. So just to give you a little update about that. Okay, I think the ushers probably have some baskets with the books of John. So each year around Christmas time, the church likes to uh, give out these little presents to you. And actually the presents are for someone else. Purpose of these are uh, to, if you have a person on your mind or on your heart, you guys can just come all the way up front that you would like to share the gospel with, you'd like to share your faith with, but you're not quite sure how, Christmas time is a great opportunity to, to do that. So we give out each year these little Gospels of John's with a nice little bow, so you can kind of give them as a present. So what we ask, though, is for you to think about who are the people, or the one person, or five people, or however many it is that you'd like to give these to, and ask for that many. The church purchases them We will give them to you so that you can give the people. If there's nobody that you are going to give this to, then don't take one. Leave them for somebody else. But it's a great opportunity this time of year to be able to share something like that. So the ushers are going to kind of go up the aisles. And um, as I finish up with some other announcements, just kind of uh, give you the chance. Just hold up however many fingers of the Gospels that you'd like. Oh, there's English and Spanish. Okay, thank you. Daniel? Spanish is blue? Uh, All right. So they have English and Spanish. So they'll be handing those out as well. So just as they pass up, just ask for how many, ever many that you have of people you'd like to share them with. So uh, the next thing is, um, um, oh, this is the last Sunday, so each year, we, you may know that we have an orphanage in Haiti that we support, and there's also a ministry to kind of street kids in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and each year we uh, purchase gifts for them uh, for Christmas, and we send them down. And so Mary De Silva is always so kind to actually just purchase all the stuff And so then if you have money today, you can go in the back if you'd like to and you could buy one of the gifts and fill out one of the cards. You don't even have to go shopping. She's already done the shopping for you. But we don't take credit cards. So you'll have to either pay with a check or cash. And that will be in the back after the service. And um, I think that's everything. All right. So we'll just get a few more of these gospels of john handed out and you can always ask at the end freddie freddie wants the gospel john you can always get these on your way out at the end as well you don't have to get them just right now either okay so please stand for the reading um, of the bible Um, if you do not have a bible you can raise your hands our ushers are multitasking today um they will get a Bible into your hands because we'll, you'll want to have the Bible in front of you as we read. We're gonna be in the book of Second Samuel chapter 21. Second Samuel is about, I don't know, a fifth of the way from the beginning in my Bible. I think the first slide probably has now. So, Second Samuel chapter 21, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, uh, and it was year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, when the Gibeonites were not, now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Uh, the children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, "What shall I do for you?" And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do for you. And then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories in Israel. Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And so the king took Armani, And uh, Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore up for Adriel, the son of Brazili, the Mahelite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord, and so they fell all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest. In the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest, now Ripsa, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven, and she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Ripsa, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. And then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh Gilead who had stolen them from the uh, street of Shan, where the Philistines had hung them up uh, after the Philistines had struck down Saul of Gilboa. And so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from there and they gathered the bones of those who'd been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul by Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin in Zela in the tomb of Kish his father and so they performed all that the king commanded and after that God heeded the prayer for the land okay let's pray father we're thankful to be here today and we're thankful for your word lord for all of your word We know that every single part of your word is meant for our instruction and learning. And as we sang this morning, we pray that you would use this word to drive us, to lead us to the cross this morning. Lord, we pray for our shepherd, Pastor Steve. We pray, Father, that you would heal his body. Father, that you would refresh his soul and his spirit. Father, we pray for the kids who may have been exposed last week. We just pray, God, that you would block anything of this virus from affecting them. We pray for all those who are at home watching online, partly because of of this exposure. We pray that you'd bless them. We pray that you would guard against any distraction, Lord. We pray over the service, Lord. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would drive this word deep into our souls, Lord, that we would know you in a deeper way and worship you more than we ever have before as a result of your word given to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the story begins in Second Samuel chapter twenty one, where there is a famine. If you don't know, a famine is a situation that arises where there's a lack of food, and usually in that part of the country, and particularly it was a lack of food because rain had stopped. The rain stops coming down and then the crops don't produce and they didn't have stop and shop, they didn't have Whole Foods, they didn't have Trader Joe's. You were a farmer and you had to farm and you had to you know, store up the food, and if it didn't rain, then that was a crisis really for the land. And so David is facing a crisis. And so that leads David to inquire as to why this famine was taking place. Now, it's worth noting here, tragedy in the life of a believer should always lead to some honest inquiry to God for why it's occurring. That doesn't mean tragedy is always the result of sin. It doesn't mean that every bad thing that happens to you is some consequence from from God. But in this particular story, as David sought the Lord on it, David learned actually this was a consequence of sin. And so David learned specifically the sin. And it wasn't actually his sin in this case. The famine was the result of David's predecessor. The king that was before David was King Saul. And at that point, King Saul had actually been dead for several years. We learn that uh, Saul's sin was that he killed the Gibeonites. Now the Gibeonites, depending on how much you've studied the Old Testament, you may remember the Gibeonites were not Jewish. There's a, a history with the Gibeonites and the Jewish people. They were the descendants of a nation called the Amorites, which was one of the pagan nations that had occupied what is called the promised land in the Bible. And when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land through Joshua, who was the commander of the armies at that time, they were told to wipe out all the pagan nations before them because the wickedness of them had grown so great. And the people of the land, hearing of what God was doing, including parting the Red Sea, and giving them victory over the Egyptians, feared. And the Amorites actually deceived the children of Israel. They came and dressed up and acted like they were from a far country. And Joshua and the Israelites then made a covenant, a peace treaty with the Gibeonites, where they promised and swore them protection, that they would not kill them. And so, even through their deception, the Gibeonites still had that peace treaty. And hundreds of years after Joshua, they still lived in the land. But it turns out that we see Saul had violated that treaty. So we can surmise a few things as we consider the nature of Saul's sin as we go through the story. First of all, it would be worth pointing out something about the taking of a life. Taking of a life is not always a sin. As I mentioned, God used the Israelites to bring judgment on these nations, to take their lives. And so death was part of that. Now, that sounds strange to us sometimes in the modern era, but still, even in our own country today, the death penalty exists for certain crimes that are considered particularly heinous. Although, of course, there is some debate about that. Perhaps if you would, I doubt there would be debate on this, but just step back in history with me in our nation 150 years, and we would be kind of at the end of the Civil War. In the Civil War, it's estimated that 620,000 people lost their lives. Was that okay? Well, it's actually an interesting situation, right? The major issue at the time was the issue of slavery. And it was considered intolerable that slavery could continue on in the South. And they had tried all political means, they'd failed, and finally it came to war. And I would argue that the shedding of blood in that situation was a righteous shedding of blood. That sin was too heinous to allow to continue in the land. And there seemed to be no other alternative than bloodshed. So there are situations where bloodshed may not be um, a sin. But in this particular situation, we learn that Saul's bloodshed is sin. And it's sin for him for two reasons. Number one he violated the peace treaty. The peace treaty was established hundreds of years before. The book of Joshua was written. Saul had read it. He knew that this peace treaty existed and as king, he should uphold it. And it was a tradition that was passed down from father to father. This was known in the land that the Gibeonites live under our peace. There's a covenant. There's a treaty with them. And yet Saul disregarded the command and decided to kill them anyway. The second reason that it's a sin is, is probably a little bit more clearly where God actually speak of Saul and calls him bloodthirsty. Bloodthirsty. Let's put up on the screen Ezekiel 33, 11. This is God speaking. He says, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their way and live. So, violence may in very rare circumstances in life be necessary. But if violence brings you pleasure, either by the act of committing the violence or else by whatever benefit you may gain from being violent, then you have strayed very far from the heart of God. So, Let's go a little deeper on on this particular subject of sin. Um, I think it's important that we explore it a little bit. It it might get a little personal, so forgive me if I offend you or make you uncomfortable, but that's why we're here today, right? We came because we want to be spoken to out of Scripture. So I'm going to use a few examples to help us see kind of the nature of sin and, and understand the nature of Saul's sin. So I'm going to give an example. Husbands, <laughs> let's say your wife finds out about your pornography issue. You could confess that you've sinned to her. You could tell her that you did a bad thing, that you broke a rule. You might have even violated a covenant that you had with each other. You could tell her that you were weak You could tell her even that you're addicted. But at the end of the day, your wife sees into your heart. And what does she see? What does she interpret? Other than that you love imagining sex with the types of girls that you see in the pornography more than you enjoy having sex with her. And that gets a little deeper than a rule, doesn't it? That gets down into the heart. Maybe you're upset at yourself because you keep breaking these rules, but she's upset because she knows where your addiction stems from. It stems from affections for someone who isn't her. You see, your sin goes much, much deeper than where your eyes and your hands are going. Your sin springs up from the soil of your own very perverse heart. Let's talk about another sin. Let's talk about gossip. I don't gossip. Nobody in here gossips. I just tell the truth. Ever heard that? The sin of gossip isn't so much about whether we're telling the truth, part of the truth, which is probably more likely if you're gossiping, or even if you're just telling an overt lie. The sin of gossip comes from a place where you desire to tear down another person and their reputation in the eyes of someone else. Why does anyone gossip? Why do you gossip? Because you hate the person you're gossiping about. And you're so uncomfortable with your hatred that if you paint that other person bad in another person's eyes, they'll agree with you and sort of vindicate you and your hatred. And now we have two people hating another person. Me? Do that? Well, that's what you might imagine, right? You would like to tell ourselves, no, I just tell the truth and let other people draw their own conclusions. Don't deceive yourself. Imagine, one way to consider this, one way I think about whether I'm gossiping or not, is imagine if some of your so-called truth-telling conversations were recorded and the other per- the person you're gossiping about could actually watch the conversation and then they were to have to conclude, why are you talking about this? Is it for my benefit? Does this other person really need to know? Can this other person help me? Is is there a good reason, right? Sometimes there might be a good reason, but is there a good reason in this situation? Or are they gonna see the reality that you hate them? And that's why you want to make that person look down on you. Sometimes looking at our sin from those eyes exposes it. And the truth is, gossiper, Your sin goes deep too. It springs from the soil of your own murderous heart. For the past 12 years, I've been a chaplain with the Department of the Youth Services in Boston. I've worked with, I've kind of lost count, but I know now it's well over 500 youth who've been incarcerated. Over 95% of them are gang involved. I've mentored you know, several dozen of these uh, young people in the community. I, I've been um, um, I've been a foster parent to a handful of them as well. Nearly all of them have been arrested on violent crimes involving guns or knives. Most of them who have had close friends who've been murdered. Some of them have murdered one or more people themselves. And the majority of these young people by the time I meet them have been locked up multiple times. Now, um, I have a good relationship with the youth. I've been going there uh, for, for so long. In some ways, by God's grace, I'm a little bit of a fixture in the place I'm thankful for. And so sometimes I'll ask them these questions. This is a common question. Sometimes I'll ask them in a group. We'll have our Bible studies in a group of them. What's going to happen to a person who continues to gangbang? Someone who continues to be part of a gang? And the answer is always the street. It's always the same. If you gang bang, you end up dead or in jail. Okay, you're right. I agree with that. So then I ask the question, do you want to end up dead or in jail? No, of course not. So then I ask the question, so does that mean you're going to leave your gang? and start a new life, the answer is always something like, nah, bro, it's not that easy. Not that easy? It sounds so obvious, right? To us, who aren't gang involved, like, this sounds simple. How could you possibly lead this life on that you know where it ends? Well, in the youth prisons uh, in Boston, the, the kids get counseling, they get treatment, they have all kinds of programs to help them learn about impulse control, they get uh, education. Many of them get their high school diploma or GED. Some of them can even take college classes. And then when they get out of prison, they have these caseworkers, they get them jobs. I mean, it's amazing in a state like Massachusetts, one of the wealthier states in the United States, how many resources go into these kids. And the sad reality is nearly all of them return back into the street life, and the vast majority of them end up in jail again. And so in my Bible studies, I'll have these kinds of conversation with them, and I explain sin just like I explained it to you today. And after having these conversations and everyone agreeing and and sorting all these things out, I ask the question to them, why do you think you keep coming back to jail? Why do you think you keep going back to the streets and it's always the same struggle, I don't know, I don't know, and so I tell them what the word of God says, that the reason you keep going back is there's something you love about the street life. I'm not saying you love having your friends killed. I'm not saying you love having to look over your shoulder or that you love going, going in and out of jail but there's something about the streets you love. Maybe it's that sort of feeling of loyalty and something that feels like a family that you missed out on in your life. Maybe it's the fast money, selling drugs, robbing. Money comes quick that way. That's exciting for a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old. Or the power you feel when you hold a gun. Wow, you're 14 years old and you have a gun. People look at you like a man. People do what they love. And the reason they return over and over is because they love it. And it's been my observation, very few leave, but those who leave do so because they find something in life that they love more than the streets. Could be a girl, they fall in love and she's not about being with a guy who's in the streets. Maybe they have a kid and they realize, man, I don't want to end up in jail and miss out on my kid growing up. Maybe they find a mentor who steps into the role of the father figure they're missing. And what I really pray for is they come to know Jesus in the way I have because the love of Christ compels us, right? That that old way is dead. I have a reason to live a new life. People do what they love to do. Saul's sin is like their sin. And their sin is like your sin, and your sin is like my sin, it's not just a matter of us breaking a few rules. God said Saul was bloodthirsty. He was thirsting for murder. And the reason we sin is we have an affection for it. We have a love for sin. And in Saul's case, he loved his sin more than he loved his God. Now, as we explore this story, it's sort of this interesting reality. God tells David about this sin. And without saying another word, David immediately goes to the Gibeonites. But why? What would drive him to go to the Gibeonites if God didn't tell him to do so? Well, there's this sort of interesting thing. It's kind of hardwired in us. It's this, this need, this awareness, this sense and a necessity for justice. You don't even have to speak it, it's there. It's kind of like a reflex. You ever go to the doctor, they sit you on the table and they take that little hammer and they hit your knee and you kick like that. You're like, wow, how did that happen? I didn't tell my leg to kick. It's a reflex, it's hardwired in you. The sense of justice is hardwired in you as well. Justice is something we think should happen. And if you wanna know whether that's true, just wait till somebody does something wrong to you something that offends you, something that hurts you. Your reflux, bang, it'll be just like this to want and demand justice. I want justice for how I was injured. Interestingly, when we do something wrong to somebody else, that reflex gets a little more suppressed. But the odd thing is, it's sort of wired into our psychology Something about that unsatisfied justice, that thing that I've done that was never, no payment, no justice, like it gnaws at you. It gnaws at your soul. It weighs on your conscience. It leads to anxiety. It turns into depression. And despondency and worse. So many things come out of that place. We're wired to have that justice satisfied. And when we're the ones who've committed the wrong and, and that justice is not satisfied, it completely contorts our psyche and turns into all kinds of bizarre things. Now, David, being a man of God, already knows. Justice may not be pleasant here, but justice is inevitable. And therefore, he wastes no time going to the Gibeonites and inquiring of them. So let's read that verse, chapter 21, verse 3 again. It says, Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Atonement? What's that word mean? It's a very kind of churchy word. Atonement. Another word for atonement, a synonym would be to appease, to cover to purge, to reconcile. You know, I work, as I mentioned, with a lot of kids in the street and two people who have a conflict, they say they're beefing with each other, right? And then they have to get together. Maybe they'll squash the beef. That's kind of like atonement. There's another word I really like. It's not good grammar, but it's a perfect description. They say, no, those two guys got together and they deaded that issue. Deaded it. That means dead in the past tense. The issue's no longer alive. It's dead. It's deaded. That's a great description of atonement. To take the thing that was a problem and to make that problem dead. It's gone. So what did the Gibeonites request to make atonement for the atrocities committed by Saul? Well, in verse 7, we read that they want seven men of the descendants of Saul that they might hang them before the Lord. And why? Well, they have an interesting logic and and ration in this. Saul's purpose was to try to exterminate our existence from the land of Israel. And so we want to try and equally exterminate his name, his family line from the land of Israel as well. And so to do so, we're going to take seven of his descendants and kill them so that they cannot sort of populate the land in that way, at least slow them from populating the land. And so in verse nine, we see that David delivers these seven men. They happened to be uh, seven grandsons of Saul. By the time this was happening, they would have been grown men. And so David gives them to the Gibeonites and they hanged all seven of them together. Huh well so there's a hanging so we get to learn a little bit more about the timing of this hanging and some of the things that happened there um, we get to learn something about the time in which the bodies hung they were left strung up by their necks in verse 9 it we learned that the hanging took place in the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest barley harvest was an important time in the nation of israel In verse 10, we see that the mother of two of these uh, men sets up this kind of camp. She puts sackcloth on a rock there and she considers it her service to prevent the birds of the day or the beasts of night from eating their bodies. That would imply that the bodies hung there for a few days. They began to decompose and birds and beasts would be coming. We further learned that the bodies hung until the late rains poured on them from heaven. Don't know exactly how long that took, but the late rains would come after the barley harvest as part of the wheat growing. Have you ever seen what happens to a body after days of exposure to the elements, without refrigeration, without embalming? Have you ever seen what that looks like? I actually have, I worked in a forensic uh, autopsy lab for three months and I remember in particular one guy who was found hung in a house and he'd been there about seven days and I can tell you it's a disgusting thing to behold. The body begins to swell, it becomes discolored. I could describe a lot of things, but one time I was giving a message and I described too much and a young lady walked outside and fainted and hit her head on the ground. And so I'm, I'm going to stop there. But I want you to kind of have as much as your mind can have of the image of this thing. This would have been horrific. Absolutely disgusting. Interestingly, in this scene... The Bible says we were created in the image of God. And how do we look in God's eyes when sin is in us? We're so used to seeing it. It's horrific, like a rotting corpse compared to the image he created us to be in. Well, at the end of this period of time, David um, puts together a burial for these men. He collects their bones. He actually brings up Saul's bones and Jonathan's bones. He buries all the bones together in the tomb of their father, Kish, in the land of Benjamin. And Saul hears of Rithsa what she had done. He's, he admires it. That's probably part of what pushes him to do this with the bones. And then in verse 14, we learn that God hears their prayer again. And that the land again produces its harvest and that the famine has ended. So that's the end of this story. What a horrible story. Some of you guys are sitting here thinking to yourselves, of all the stories in the Bible, is this the best one you could come up with? Couldn't you try a different one? I wanted something uplifting. Well, I happen to love this story. And the reason I love this story is that the gospel is hidden in this story. Have you seen it yet? Did you notice it as we were reading through it? It really is a horrific story. It's really very, very ugly, but it is one of the most amazing stories ever told. The sin of Saul is a picture of the original sin committed by Adam and Eve and then reenacted each generation from generation with an ever-increasing flow of evil. We see the result of Adam and Eve's sin leading to a curse upon the land that makes life difficult, famine, uh, those types of things coming upon the land and, and making it difficult to relate to God, difficult to connect with them. And then the question then comes with this sin from not just one lineage, not just from Saul, one branch in human history, but a sin that originates at the very beginning with Adam and Eve that we're all related to? Who could atone for such a sin as this, for a sin of the entire world? Moses once tried to do this for the children of Israel. You may remember that in your Bible history. God rejected it. no. Only Jesus, only the Son of God, who took on flesh, born in a manger, what we celebrate on Christmas, grew to a man living and teaching among men, the one who had never sinned, he alone could be the atoning sacrifice. The grandsons of Saul might have been innocent of the murder of the Gibeonites. We don't actually know here but I can assure you, they were not innocent of sin themselves. In the book of Hebrews, verse fourteen, uh, chapter four, verse fifteen, uh, the Bible says Jesus, who was the only one who ever lived, was like this: was tempted in every way that we are, but never sinned. He's the only one. That uniquely makes him qualified for atonement. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says, God made him who had never sinned to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Also, different than Saul's grandsons, Jesus was not only perfect, but the scripture says that because of his perfection, the grave could not hold him. It says that in Acts chapter 2 verse 4. And then the Bible says that he was justified by the Spirit, meaning declared perfect. It says that in 1 Timothy 3:16, and then he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. It says that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Now, interestingly, the day of Christ's resurrection is a feast celebrated by Israel called the Day of First Fruits. It was the day in which the people would bring the first piece of barley from the barley harvest into the temple to declare praise to God that he gave them the barley harvest, the first of the harvest. Notice the timing of that. Exactly the same time where Saul's grandsons would atone for the sin of Gibeah. Jesus atones for the sins of the entire world. Well, You might be thinking to yourself, you know, like I'm used to thinking of Christianity as like a pretty cross, maybe gold, maybe on a necklace, maybe something a little cleaner than this. I mean, this just seems horrific. Why? Why does it have to be so horrific Well, the answer is that the atonement has to match the crime. Let's look at what Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. Pierced, that's talking about the nails that went into his hands, through the skin, into the hands, and outside the other. Same into his feet. Why was that necessary? Why couldn't it just be a scratch or a cut or, or a slap or a beating or something? Well, the answer is what we said already. Your sin is not a superficial issue. Your sin runs all the way into the core of your being. It's in your heart. It's in your soul. It's in that place you like to call your identity. Your sin runs deep. And the only way atonement can be made is for a nail that pierces that deep. That nail had to go into the depth of Christ and out the other side to atone for that kind of sin. Why does it have to be so ugly though? Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14 talks about Jesus and how he was tortured and beaten. It says that his appearance was so disfigured that any human being uh, that that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness why was that necessary why did it have to be so bad that you couldn't even recognize him for who he was well the answer is is because that is how bad your sin has twisted and distorted you from the image of god you were created to bear on this planet. It had to be that bad because your sin is that bad. Your sin runs deep and that sin spewing from an identity is completely disfiguring and warping you into something else than you were created to be. His whole appearance had to be marred in the same way that our appearance as the image of God has been marred by our sin. Now, maybe you're coming today and you were hoping for a positive message, something uplifting. I do have an uplifting message. I do. It's called the gospel. But the thing about the gospel is the gospel doesn't lift you up by bolstering your ego, the gospel does not help you by improving your self esteem. What is the gospel? Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. By his stripes you are healed. That's the gospel. What are those stripes talking about there? It's talking about that whip. Some of you have seen the Passion of the Christ, that whip that had those little leather hooks connected to pieces of metal and glass that ripped the skin in patterns of stripes on his back. Your healing. Is in the wounds of Jesus. You can't heal yourself by doing good works. You can't get there by trying your best. No amount of positive thinking will fix your problem. Only the wounds of Christ. That's the gospel. Positive messages, warm experiences have no power against the terminal diagnosis of sin. As Jesus drew near Jerusalem for his, crucif- for his crucifixion, he spoke these words as he wept over Jerusalem. Luke uh, chapter 19 and verse 42. It says, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. That make for your peace. I find peace in the wounds of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. If you understood the things, he's talking about the agony, he's talking about the stripes, he's talking about the nails, he's talking about the things that make for your peace. The night that Jesus was born, the angels declared to the shepherds, Luke chapter 2, verse 14. This is probably the most famous verse quoted on a Christmas card Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Did the shepherds know on that day when they saw that baby the things that would be required of this Christ to make for their peace? Do you have peace in your life today? That's the question I have for you. Do you know peace? Not a positive, warm feeling. Not a stable ego. Not a good self-esteem issue. No. Do you have peace? We began this morning with the story of a famine. And in this world today... In the lost world, you will find that there is a great famine today. It's not a famine of food. It's not a famine of rain. There is a famine of peace. People do not have peace, and they desperately want it, but don't know how to get it. Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. Remember a verse like this, similar to this, speaking to me in the months before I gave my life to Christ. You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. It's like a riddle that resonated with my soul. I wasn't broke. I had a job, my career was going well. I had things to eat, I had clothes to wear, but somehow I lived in the constant space of always never being quite satisfied. Isn't it interesting? The prophet speaks it into their lives. He may be speaking it into your life today. No matter what you do, no matter what you try, no matter how many drugs you take, no matter how much you drink, no matter how many relationships You get in, it doesn't matter who the person is. You can try and try. Maybe it's your career, maybe degrees, maybe multiple degrees. You try it all. There's a moment of happiness, but never any lasting satisfaction. You have a famine, a famine of peace. John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. Jesus spoke this, the day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Interestingly, in the scriptures, particularly Old Testament scripture, the prophets spoke of the Holy Spirit often in terms of water, sometimes describing him as a river, sometimes as the rain. Kind of interesting comparisons. Jesus as the word, like a seed that goes into the ground. The rain, the Holy Spirit, that brings forth fruit in our lives go back to the story of the atonement at Gibeah and the latter rains didn't come until after they were hung. Right, The harvest didn't occur until after the atonement was complete and Jesus is telling you, I have something to pour out on you, something that gives you peace, someone who will guide you and counsel you and lead you into me. That person is the Holy Spirit And he said, it's good for you that I go away because unless I go, the Holy Spirit cannot come. The Holy Spirit is what Jesus gives. It's that gift for us today. That's the reason we're here today. Church started 2,000 years ago and held together by the Holy Spirit, those latter reigns. If the worship team uh, could come up and if you've been... um, asked to pray you can come up. I want to speak also to maybe somebody or maybe a few people in the church like maybe you've grown up going to church, maybe you grew up reading the Bible, or maybe you've been a Christian for a few years and you've served in the church and you go to the Bible studies and you try to learn and and you search the scriptures trying to figure out how to solve some of the problems that you have in your life, trying to figure out how to make things work, how to get some control over your flesh, how to manage some things in your life. Jesus spoke these verses to some religious people. John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because the, you think that in them you have eternal life then he says, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have that life. Notice what Jesus is saying here. The Christ is not an idea. He's not a creed, he's not a statement of faith that one professes. He is a person, a person who's risen. This very Bible that you're holding in your hands right now he's telling you is here because it's declaring that Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead, and he is here today in our midst, and he is the one can heal. He's the one that can bring peace. A few months into my first year of becoming a Christian, I remember I was at a communion service, and it was one of the evening communion services. We kind of had a longer time of worship, and My eyes closed, and I had a vision. I think it was the only vision I've ever really had. In that vision, I was standing right in front of Jesus. And even though I'd given my life to Christ, I still felt the weight and guilt of my sin. I, I felt like, you know, these people in here are very nice and all, but I kind of did too much. And I felt like I still had that. And in this vision, Jesus just looked right at my, and said, give it to me. And I was standing right in front of him and I reached out my hand and I put it on his leg and it was like immediate. My sin went into him. And the the way I understood it was this. I looked into his face and I saw shame. He wasn't ashamed of me. It was the shame that I'd seen in my face a thousand times in front of the mirror. That same shame was in his face. Someone asked me the other day, what does that mean? He became sin for us. He took it all into him. Not, not a list of commands I broke, no. He took the entity of sin inside his very body and was crucified for it. And then he exhaled and he died in front of me. And it kind of freaked me out. I was new to this whole thing. I did not grow up around any kind of like weird stuff happening. And I remember thinking to myself, I just killed Jesus. And I never felt more free in my entire life. Wow, it was deaded. All that past stuff was gone, it died. It was an amazing thing today. And I wonder if there are some of you here today and you're still doubting. You're still doubting if Jesus can deal with the types of sin that you struggle with. Do you remember what Jesus said to Thomas on his day of doubting? Let's put it up there. John chapter 20 and verse 27. Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is here today. And if you're willing to be honest about just how deep your sin goes in you, he will lead you to a place where you will put your fingers into the holes in his hands. You will put your hands into his side and you will find peace for your soul. This morning I was having my quiet time with the Lord, my devotional time. I was reading and praying through a psalm and praying for the church as I was filling lead at that time and these words just popped into my head. I'm not a poet, but I felt like the Lord gave them to me, so I'll share them with you. Into the wounds of Christ, my soul run in. Only there can I ever find release from the guilt of sin. Think of all the songs that we sing. Lead me to the cross, Right? in the cross, what are we talking about? We're talking about going into the wounds of Christ. That is the place where we find release from the guilt of of sin. And I can tell you, there is nothing else that can bring peace like that in a person's life than an experience with Christ in that way. And he wants to have that experience with us today. One of the ways we experience that and it's just one of the ways we do that by communion but in most of you will find there's a communion element under your table before we take communion we're going to have a song and we're going to have the prayer partners if there's anything that's stirred in your heart and you want to pray about it before going to communion you come up and do that and if you've never given your life to christ you've never even entered those wounds before come up and pray with us that can happen now